Praise the Lord, people of God. It's great to be here. It's great to see what the Lord is doing in Brooklyn um, and how the Lord has expanded this church and made my job harder today so I have to preach twice. I'm so glad I have to do that. Amen. I'm so glad to hear and see what the Lord is doing. Uh, Let's pray. We'll jump into the word today. Father God, we are grateful and thankful you are good and your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. Lord, I pray that as we come to you and your word today, that you would speak to us through your word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Unstop our ears, soften our hearts where they are hard, and do what you want to do to draw us to you and form us even more in the image and likeness of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to be preaching today from Genesis chapter 32. So if you've got your Bible, if you don't know where Genesis is, tap your neighbor. It's kind of towards the beginning. Genesis chapter 32, and I'm going to read verses 22 through 31. The Bible reads this way. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Verse 26, then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And he and there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. May God bless the reading, hearing, and doing of his word. Uh, Today I'm going to speak for a few minutes on the subject, preparing for the presence of God. Preparing for the presence of God. We come to the middle of the story of Jacob here in these pages. And the the story that's going on that we just jumped into the middle of was Jacob is preparing to meet his brother Esau. He's been away for over 20 years. He's going to meet his brother Esau. The last he knew of Esau, his bigger, hairier, brawnier brother was that Esau said, if I ever see that little rascal again, I'm going to kill him. That's the last of he knew, that he knew of his brother Esau. But God has sent him back away uh, from uh, his, his, his uncle's house, uh, far away in Syria. And he's going back and he is scared. 
He is frightened out of his mind. I wonder if anyone else has ever experienced that. Have you been like scared out of your mind? Anybody in this place? Wow. Okay. Y'all ain't scary people. Okay. I, I get scared sometimes. Uh, I remember some years ago, uh, I was downstairs in our house, my wife, and I have two girls. They were younger. They were downstairs, uh, upstairs, and, and I heard these screams. Ah! Ah! I'm like, okay, what's going on? My wife runs down the stairs, and she says, there's a bird in the bedroom. I'm like, a bird? Come on, I'm a man. I'm not scared of no bird. Little robin, little sparrow in the bedroom. I'm a man. I, I'm going to go in there and take care of business. So I go in there and I see this bird. Now, some of y'all did double dutch back in the day, right? So in double dutch, this is what I learned because my girls used to do it, um, that when someone can't turn right, you say they're afflicted. At least that's what they say in Philly. They're afflicted. Like, they're not turning right. I'm watching this bird, and this bird is afflicted, just flying around the room, but just kind of crazy flying around the room. And then it stops, and it hangs upside down. And I said, ah! <laughs> I ran out that room. <laughs> that ain't no bird. That's a bat. A flying rat, that's a bad, I don't like it. I was scared, y'all. You got to understand being scared. Uh, let me ask you one more survey question. How many of you just love horror movies? Anybody here love horror movies? Okay, pastor, after service, can we get some oil and just pour it on them? Because there's something wrong with you if you like being scared. See, you like it in the movies, but you don't like it in real life. You don't really want to be scared like that. But here was Jacob, and he is that scared. He is fearing for his life. And we've got to understand where that comes from, the history of this man. We're going to get to the text in a minute. But in, in the larger text, Jacob's name literally means heel grabber. He was the second of twins. His brother Esau came out, and when Jacob came out, he was grabbing his heel. It, it figuratively means deceiver, liar, schemer, and Jacob was one who lived up to his name. For the whole of his life, he lived up to his name. There's two overwhelming realities in Jacob's life. I'm going to share one of them now and one of, my, one of them at the end. But the first reality was Jacob, wherever he went, there was deception. Deception. He was a deceiver. Um, so uh, he had deceived and uh, 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 schemed his brother Esau out of his birthright, out of the deathbed blessing of his father. And that's what made Esau so angry that he said, I'm going to kill this rascal. And Jacob's mama said, Jacob, you got to get out of town. I'm going to send you to Laban. It's a few hundred miles away in a place called Padan Aram, which is now Syria. And you can marry someone from his family. So he went there and he, he saw Laban's daughter, uh, Rachel, and he immediately fell in love with the girl. Now, he was a schemer, but he ran into another schemer, Laban, his uncle. So they had a 20-year period of mutual swindleization going on between the two of them. They're swindling each other, but the worst swindle was this one. It had to be the worst one ever. So Jacob falls in love with Rachel, says, I want to marry the girl, goes to daddy. Daddy says, no problem, you can marry the girl, but you have to work seven years for me. 
I'm like, dang, seven years. But Jacob didn't bat an eye. He said, no problem. This girl was fine. I want her bad. Seven years ain't nothing. And the Bible said it seemed like but days. He was so in love with the girl. And so he comes to the end of seven years, said, Laban, uncle, it's my time, unc. Give her to me. He said, no problem, no problem. You got it. You got it. But, you know, it's a wedding. We have to have a party. So he does this elaborate party. Now, before the party starts, he makes sure that Jacob gets a little bit of wine. And during, during the party, he makes sure Jacob gets a little bit more wine. At the end of the party, he says, here, drink the rest of the wine. <laughs> so by the end of this whole thing, Jacob is stumbling drunk. And uh, he says, okay, I want my bride now, right? He's drunk. He's in the tent. And uh, he sent, he got, here's my daughter. He sends the daughter in. It's dark. Now, here's the worst swindle in the history of the Bible. It's funny, but it's sad. The Bible says when he woke up in the morning, this is King James, behold, it was Leah. He gave him the older sister. And according to the Bible, I'm just saying what the Bible says, the uglier sister, right? So he got the other sister. He wasn't in love with Leah, but uh, he wasn't in love with Leah, but he got Leah. So you have all this period of swindling going back and forth between these two guys. Jacob is a rascal. He's a swindler. But now he's on his way back to see his brother Esau. And as he prepares, we didn't read starting at verse 9, but a couple things just in the background of this. He does three things. Number one, he prays like he never prayed before. You know, sometimes when you are scared, that will do wonders for your prayer life. So he is scared like he's never been scared before. And in verse 9, he begins to pray, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. He, he starts with reciting the promise of God toward him. At the end of the prayer, in verse 12, he says, but you said, you said, God, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea. See, in his fear, he prays like he never prayed before. In his prayer, in his fear, he remembers God's promise. Psalm 56 verse 3 says, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. And when we trust in God, we don't trust in something that we're making up about God, but we trust in the word of God. That's what he does in this place. I love this part of his prayer as well. He says in verse 10, Jacob says, I'm not worthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love that you've done for me. He, he gets humble before God. He gets humble. Jacob, up to this point, we've never seen signs of humility in this man. But in his fear, knowing that he could be facing death at the hands of his brother, all of a sudden, he gets humble before God. That's a good way to be, y'all. And not only that, but he not only prays, he makes provision in verses 13 through 21. I'm not going to read those, but he, he, he comes up with a scheme again. Jacob's a schemer, and his brother's coming, his brother's mad, and the Bible says he's coming with 400 men. Now, these men are not like the ballet troupe of uh, Brooklyn, right? These men are soldiers. These men are strapped. These men are ready to go. And so Jacob says, oh, my goodness. 
I'm in trouble here. So he comes up with this plan and he sends droves of, of herds of cattle and of sheep and of camels. He sends five different teams out before him. They each greet him and say, this is a gift from your servant, Jacob. And so he's doing everything to butter up his older brother and make him okay. So he makes provision. He gives him over 550 animals. Jacob had grown rich uh, in, in Laban's camp. But then this is what I want to focus on today. In verses 22 uh, and following, he prepares for the presence of God. He prepares to meet God. And, and so I want to look at three things from this text If you really want to experience God's presence, what do you need to do? Well, let's look at Jacob, first of all. Verse 22. The same night, he arose and took his two wives, two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone. Let me say this. If you want to know the Lord, if you want the transforming presence of God to change your life, then you must make room in your life for solitude. You must make room in your life to get alone and be with God. And y'all live in New York City, most of you. I know some of y'all are from Jersey and just coming on in, but... but from New York City, this, this is like the beast of Babylon in terms of just how busy life is. I'm in Philly, and Philly is crazy, but whenever I come to New York, I love coming to New York. But then I get to go home. <laughs> it slows down a little bit, right, in Philly, but it's crazy busy. I know your lives are crazy, but, but you need to find time. You need to make time time in your life. You won't find it. You need to make it to get along with God. If you think you had a problem doing that, look at Jacob. The Bible says Jacob had two wives and then two women who were virtual wives as well. He was having babies from all of them. So you do the math. There's something going on, right? I'm married to my beautiful wife, Harriet, 32 years. Love this woman. She... she, for some reason, she hasn't left me yet. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Right, but I have one wife. I got busy, busy, busy. Jacob got four women in the house. And every woman, read the text. Every woman wants a little piece of Jacob. And according to the text, they're all getting some Jacob. Good gracious. He's got 11 kids. Ten of them boys. I had two brothers. I don't know how my mom and my dad made it because we were breaking things and running and just doing stuff all of the time. Ten boys and one little girl, Dinah, I don't know how she made it. But here's Jacob in the midst of all of this. He's rich. He has servants and flocks and herds and he's got all of this stuff going on. But he says, I need to get along with God. If Jacob needed it, so do you. You need to make time to get alone with God. C.S. Lewis said these words, We live, in fact, in a world starved for solitude, silence, and private, and therefore starved for meditation and true friendship. Some people here have 3,000 virtual friends. I've got like 2,000 virtual friends. Now, I virtually know hardly any of them, right? Right? 
But, but we have all this virtual relationship, and I wonder how often we have a virtual relationship with God. Are you ever one-on-one? Or is he just another part of your Twitter feed or what's on your Facebook page? Do you get alone with God? We need to get alone with him. If you don't learn to get alone with God, you will never be and become what God has designed you to be. You can't be that for yourself. You can't be that for your loved ones. You can't be that in the larger community of people. You, you, uh, Pastor uh, Brandon was just talking about, or they were talking about the, the life groups or the small groups here. And I'm, I'm a community life pastor at Epiphany in Philly. I'm always pressing people to get involved in small group community because we desperately need that. But if all we're doing is moving towards community but making no time for solitude, we can't be a blessing to that very community. You need to make time in your life to be with God. If you're not making consistent room for solitude in your life, it's a sure sign that you are too confident in yourself. You think you can do it. You think, I got this. Brother, Sister, you don't got it. Brother, sister, I sure as heck don't got it. I need Jesus desperately today. And when I wake up tomorrow, I wake up with a desperate need to be with Christ in that day, at that time, and throughout the day. We need to be people who make room for solitude. If we're going to experience God's presence, not only do we need to make room for solitude, but you're going to have to persevere through pain. Look at me at verse 24. Look with me at verse 24. Jacob was left alone. The Bible says, And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when, and when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as He wrestled with him. Jacob wrestled with this man who we're going to find out is actually the angel of the Lord or what we call a theophany, an appearance of God where God takes on a form of a human being in order to come and have this meeting with Jacob. Uh, I don't know if anyone here has ever wrestled. I'm not talking about WWE right now, but talking about like high school or college, Greco-Roman kind of wrestling where you wrestle and you have in high school three periods of two minutes each. I didn't wrestle uh, in... uh, in, in school, but I was like in wrestling intramurals. I know that doesn't really count, but, but I did. I came in second place too in my class. Yeah. But, but wrestling, you can wrestle two, uh, three periods of two minutes each, six minutes. And when you're done, if you're wrestling against someone who is as strong as you or stronger, then in that six minutes, you have left Every last ounce of energy in your body on that mat. There's nothing else like it. Football's not like it. Basketball's not like it. You know, other sports, they cannot compare to the amount of energy you expend every second you're on that mat, six minutes. In college, they have an extra minute, seven minutes. Jacob wrestles seven hours, eight hours, perhaps 10 hours 
while it's dark. He's wrestling, and he's not wrestling with that little scrawny guy from, uh, what's that television show with the, the brainy guy? He's not, he's not wrestling with Urkel. I wasn't thinking about Urkel, but that's a good one. He was not re- wrestling with Steve Urkel. He wasn't wrestling, I'm old, with Barney Fife from Andy Mayberry. <laughs> He's wrestling with a theophany. He's wrestling with God come in in a present way. And, And the craziness is the text says that he wasn't able to prevail against Jacob. Now, what in the world does that mean? He's God. Of course, in a second with his pinky finger, he could pin him on the mat and destroy him. But he does not do that. He lets him expend every last ounce of his energy for the entire night till Jacob comes to nothing. You know, as you read the story of Jacob early on, you get the idea that Jacob is like mama's boy. He's mama's little pet. Esau's the rugged dude, and Jacob is like trying to figure out the family recipes with mama. Jacob ain't no mama's boy right here. He wrestles all night long. And then God touches him and pulls his hip out of joint. Excruciating pain. Excruciating pain. But Jacob perseveres through that pain. And let's look at the, the text again. In verse 26, the Lord says to him, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. No energy, totally gone, in extreme, excruciating pain. But Jacob holds on in pain. If you're going to walk with God, I wish I could say, people of God, if you're in covenant with the Lord, if you know Jesus' love, then your life is going to be easy and God is going to bless you and make it easy for you all the way through. That's not the truth that we see in the Bible. That wasn't true for Jesus. That wasn't true for Peter. That wasn't true for Paul. That wasn't true for David. That wasn't true for Abraham. That wasn't true for Jacob and it won't be true for you. Life is hard, and in the midst of your pain, which you will encounter, what will you do? Will you hold on to God? A few years ago, I remember I had skipped my dentist for a few years. Not a good thing to do, by the way. And so I had what I call the year of the dentist. So I had multiple appointments. I met new friends. Mr. Root Canal was one of my friends. I had other people I met. But I'm going through this year, and my dentist loved her to death. But there were times in, in that year, there was much drillage going on during that year. And I, I remember many, several times, she had the drill in her hand and said, you know, I'm looking at this. It's not very deep. I don't really think we need any Novocaine. And I'm like... Excuse me. Yes, we do. We need Novocaine. We need lots of Novocaine. As a matter of fact, if you have some of that funny gas that will just knock me out, I'm fine with that. If you want to put so much Novocaine in my face that I can't feel my face for a week or so, I'm cool with that. If you want a brick on the back of my head, knock me out, I'm fine with that. But don't pick up a drill and look at my mouth and say, I don't think we need Novocaine. We need Novocaine. I don't know about you, but I don't like pain. I'm not like, oh, let's have some pain today. I want to grow in Christ. 
No, no, I don't like it. But we got to deal with it. And so what do we do when, when pain comes our way? And it will come your way. And sometimes it will feel like, and we're laughing here, but some of you may be going through something right now that feels like it's too much to bear and it's not funny. What do we do when it's too much to bear? Well, there's two things we can do. Number one is we can run from God. And, well, you're like, well, Christians would never do that. I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I would never do that. But probably we've all done it, and we all do it at times. We do it in subtle ways. We do it sometimes by just giving up. We can do it by, by hiding, by denying the pain itself. We can do that by filling our life with other comforts and distractions. You know, there's some big sins out there that we talk about, but there's a whole lot of other ones that we do that make us just feel good and, and numb us of the pain. Look, I'm from Philly. I like cheesesteak, but I know that the second cheesesteak that I eat... That, 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 that's a distraction from the pain. That's sin right there. If I finish the first one, that's, that's, that's good. That's sustenance. But cheesesteak number two is running from God. <laughs> we do things. It can be television. It can be whatever, a hobby that we have that we get so into that we're not dealing with the truth of our pain. That's called running from God. The other thing is running to God. And that's exactly what Jacob does here. I will not let you go until you bless me. Literally, the Hebrew says, I will not send you away. I'm not letting you go. I am yet holding on. All night long, it's daytime. I don't care who sees me. I'm writhing in pain, but I am running to God. I won't let you go. What keeps a person in place with God when you're in that kind of pain? And the only thing I think that can do that that can allow us to grip God tightly in the face of that kind of pain is faith in the essential goodness of God's character. When we know, not because of what I see, not because of what I feel, not because of what's going on in this world, when I know that I know that I know that God is good and if God is for me and I know that he is in spite of my condition, then who can be against me? We say with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, neither life nor death nor angels nor powers nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in all of creation is able to separate me from what? From the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. You see, we look back on that cross, that old rugged cross, and we remember forever, God is for me. It's settled. And so when we know that in the midst of that time, we hold on. There's one more thing I want you to see. Let's continue reading the text. Verse 27, it says, and he said to him, this is the theophany. This is God speaking. What is your name? Sounds like an innocuous question. Why do you want to know my name right now? And it says, and he said, Jacob. Why is that important? Why does that matter? See, there was one other time in Jacob's life when he was trying to get a blessing. His father was on his deathbed, and he and his mother made a scheme, and they said, we're going to 
dress you up in Esau's clothes. I'm going to put some rough stuff on the back of your neck so if daddy touches you back there, he'll feel the roughness because Jacob was a smooth man, but Esau was a rough and hairy man. I'm going to make you smell like your brother. I'm going to make you feel like your brother. I'm going to put a thick beard on you. And, and he goes into his father, and his father says, smells like Esau, but it sounds like Jacob. Who are you? Are you really Esau? Yes, I'm Esau. He's asked about his name. He's seeking a blessing and he lies about it. And he gets over. But here God comes to him and says, tell me your name. And he says, my name is deceiver. That's what he says. My name is liar. I want a blessing, but I don't deserve it. That was the prayer in verse 9 and 10. I, I want your blessing, but my name is liar. My name is schemer. My name is deceiver. That's who I am. You see, the third thing is, if you're going to get in God's presence, you must confess the truth of your own sin. See, when you come into the presence of a holy God, and you think you're hiding anything, first of all, you're never hiding anything. He, it's not that he doesn't know. He knows everything that has to do with you. He knows not just what you did, but he knows why you did it. And he, even when you did something good, if you had a foul motive, he knows that. And even though you didn't do it, he knows what was going on in your mind, what nasty stuff was going on. And he knows all of that. He knows everything. But here he says, I want you to confess it. I want you to come clean before me. You want to be in God's presence, you've got to get honest about your own sin. You've got to confess your sin in the presence of God. He lied about it before, but now he tells the truth. Listen, you'll never progress in your relationship with God beyond your ability to honestly talk about your own sin. For Christians, confessing sin should be a natural part of our life. It should be normal. When someone confronts me with my sin, I know my flesh wants to immediately do this, right? And then I'll make an excuse. I'll blame someone else. I'll give another reason. But because you know that if God is for me, it doesn't matter who is against me. Even if I'm against myself, I can put my hands down and say, yes, that was me. I did it. I did do that. I am sorry. Please forgive me. And then repentance says, and I'm not, I'm going to do everything in my power to ask God to help me not to ever do that again. See, we can do that when we're confident in the love of God. We can do that. Confess our sin completely. You won't make progress beyond your ability to talk about, honestly, your sin. Jacob Makes room, for, makes room to be in God's presence by making room for solitude, persevering through pain and confessing the truth of his sin. What happens as a result of that? Two things. Number one, again, let's look at verse 27. He said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, verse 28. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. He changes his name. He gives him a brand new identity. 
See, when you are in God's presence, solitude with God, when you are laid open and bare before him, you're not hiding anything anymore. God, when he changes his name, he gives him a brand new identity. I'm not identified with my sin. I'm not identified with my shame. Did I do it? Yes, I did. But he gives him a new name and he says, now your name is Israel because you have struggled with God and with man and have prevailed. He says, now I give you a name of glory. Now I give you a name of honor. Now I change your identity forever. We struggle, so many of us, with our identities from our past, from our present, from our family of origin. No matter what it may be, we struggle with identity until we find it in Jesus Christ. Because if you found your identity even in your success in this world, in how you look, in what you do, in what you have, ultimately that is going to come to nothing because God loves you enough to wrestle with you and pull your hip out of joint too. And you come to a place where the only place you can find real identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He changes his name. He gives him a brand new identity in Christ. See, we need that because we're all Jacobs. We are Jacobish, Jacoby, however you want to put it. We are Jacobs in so many ways. But not only does the Lord do that, look at verse 30. Verse 30 says, So Jacob called the place of the, the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. Verse 31, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. He's limping because God had touched him in such a way that he would never walk the same way again. When you are alone with God, when you're in God's presence and that becomes a part of your life, your self-confident walk becomes a dependent limp. Your self-confident walk becomes a dependent limp. Listen, if there was one thing that Jacob didn't need to happen to him that day in, 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 in the earth realm, it was that he didn't need to lose his ability to run because his last defense, he tried all his schemes against Esau, but one thing he could sure do if everything failed and, G, and, and Esau was still angry and wanted to kill him, Jacob could run out of that joint. But now Jacob can't run no more. The, the one thing that he could depend on, if nothing else worked, I can run. No, you can't. You limp for the rest of your life. Jacob limped for the rest of his life. Psalm 147 says, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 51, 7 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. God comes to the broken. He meets you in your brokenness. We need to come to God humble. At the beginning of the sermon, I said there were two overwhelming realities that governed Jacob's life. The first was deception. He was consistently a deceiver. But the second one is this, God always shows up. Never showed up one time because of what a great guy Jacob was. 
But God showed up because God is God and he decided to love him. And I would say to every person in this room today, God has decided to love you. He is with you. He is not against you. He is for you. The second reality is that God always shows up. In our brokenness, in our weakness, he gives us a new name. Let me close with these words. There is an old poem made very famous. Some Christians have even tried to adopt this poem and think there's a Christian theme to it, but there's actually an anti-Christian theme to it. The name of the poem is Invictus by William Ernest Henley. You've probably heard uh, the end of one of the, the, the parts of the poem that says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's not a Christian sentiment, y'all. You are not the master of your fate. A woman, Dorothy Day, rewrote the poem some years later and, and, and put it to Christian verse. But let me just read a part of Henley's poem and then I'll read Dorothy Day's reconstruction of it. Listen to these words. One is pride and one is a broken person who has received a new identity in Christ and glories in him alone. Invictus says, out of the night that covers me, Black as the night from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Dorothy Day puts it in these words, out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Let's get alone with God in his presence and see what he will do in your life. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much that we can read throughout your word and learn of you. Lord, we thank you for the life of Jacob, a man that we, many of us, I know I, can really relate to in my own brokenness, in my own sin, in my own mess. You came to me. You loved me. You cared for me. Lord, I pray for the people of God gathered in this place that you will powerfully work in the lives of your people. Draw them to yourself that we might make finding time and making time for being in your presence the most important thing we do in any day, in any week, at any time. Bless your people. Watch over and keep them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.